Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. It's good to be here. Man, we're packed out. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a time where it is very, very hard to get along with people. Everywhere we look, people are at each other's throats, it seems, tearing each other down and disagreeing about pretty much everything. It takes about five minutes on Facebook or any other kind of social media platform to see how apparent and how true this is. The world seems obsessed over the idea of unity right now, but it absolutely has no idea how to achieve it. In fact, the harder everyone tries, it seems the more divided we become. No matter what methods we implement, no matter what books we read, no matter what trendy social media posts we throw up, unity has yet to be found. And so the question for us tonight then is how can we, here at Redeemer Students, be unified? In a world that's so incredibly divided over things like racial tension, personal identity, politics, and a various amount of other topics, how will we be able to love each other and remain unified even when we disagree or offend one another? This evening we're going to be spending our time in the book of Acts looking at a church that God both established and unified to help answer that one question. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 34. Again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 34. And as you're turning there, it's important that we briefly kind of go over the context of the passage. Last week, Daniel led us all through Acts chapter 14, and we got to see how God planted and established a church in the city of Lystra. As we continue beyond that text, what we see is that following their time in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas ended up going back to the city of Jerusalem. And after a bunch of different things happened there, Paul decided to embark on what we now call his second missionary trip. And he decided to do this with a man named Silas. And as the second trip began, God intervened multiple times to guide Paul. On this journey, Paul even revisited Lystra, that city we just talked about last week. And there he added another follower to his journey, a boy named Timothy. In fact, you may recognize the name. There's two books of the Bible named after him. And so after this, Paul and his group, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, traveled to the port city. It's called Troas. And in Troas, two key things happened. And the first is that we see Luke, the author of the book of Acts, joins Paul's group. And he forms what I like to call the Gospel Missions 18. I grew up, I'm a tiny bit older than all of you, and so I still watched a show called The A-Team when I was young. And it was just this group of men who could accomplish pretty much anything. And so now we have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, Gospel Mission 18. The second thing we see is that here Paul also received a vision of a man from Macedonia. And he was calling out to Paul in his dreams, asking him for help. And Paul, after he woke, immediately took this as a sign from the Holy Spirit and decided to go to the district of Macedonia. 
And that's where we're going to start today. In verse 11, it says this. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And so we see from Troas, Paul and his companions boarded a ship, and the ship took them to Neapolis. And from Neapolis, the men then traveled 10 miles northwest, walking to the city of Philippi. Why do I bring this up? Uh, well, Luke is kind of painting in the Macross. Um, when we were discussing this and studying the passage, the idea that came up is if Indiana Jones movies, they're some of my favorites, and in them, whenever Indy's kind of going from place to place, continent to continent, there's this map, and you kind of see the plane flying from dot to dot. That's what Luke's doing. He's showing us the dots so we can track where Paul's going. The other thing he's doing is he's emphasizing the spread of the gospel across the world. One of the key verses in the book of Acts is Acts, we find it in the first chapter where Christ is talking to his disciples. And he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Luke is showing us here in chapter 16 how that mission is being carried out through Paul, how the gospel is being brought to the very ends of the earth. And so Luke reminds us of the bigger narrative. And it's here where we're going to see God establish his unified church in the city of Philippi. And we will see this through three separate conversion stories, all kind of separate yet connected. And that's where we're going to begin today. And in our first story, we're going to see a businesswoman named Lydia. So we will begin in verse 13. And it says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the first thing we see is that this woman, Lydia, is going to be the center focus of the first story. Who was she? Well, she was a businesswoman. We see that she had left her home in Thyatira, which would have been in what was known as Asia at the time. And she immigrated to Philippi to do what? To sell purple cloth. And we know that purple dye was expensive at this time. And because of this, we would know that Lydia was likely a very wealthy merchant. And she was making lots and lots of money. This is further reinforced when we see that she has a house big enough to host Paul and all of his guys, and later on, the church. The final key thing this text tells us about Lydia is that she was a worshiper of God. And that's a really important phrase, because what it means is she wasn't Jewish, but she had a knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament and the Jewish God. And this meant that she was very much so... Uh, kind of open to receiving the gospel. Paul would have been able to connect much of his knowledge about the Old Testament, Testament when he was proclaiming Jesus to this woman. And so for us today, who would this be in our lives? Who would be the Lydia's? Well, when I think about it for you guys, this is probably the person who goes to a private Christian school. Their family's quite wealthy. They have a lot of resource. And they have a lot of knowledge about the Bible. But what's important about those people and Lydia is they all share the same need. And what is that need? Jesus Christ. When we read this text, she isn't saved until the Lord opens her heart. And friends, people can know every single verse of the Bible, but if 
Christ has not opened their heart to salvation. They are not saved. And we need to recognize this. So that's who we're dealing with in Lydia. So then we ask, how was she saved? Well, we see first when Paul and his crew kind of arrive at the city, they begin their ministry in Paul's usual style. Reading through all the different accounts of Paul planting churches, his first move was usually to go to the synagogue. And if there wasn't a synagogue in the city, he would go to what was known as the place of worship. Why would he do this? He, he would go to these places first when he's proclaiming the gospel because he knew that he would be given an audience and that the people there would be open at least to discussing a monotheistic God. And so we see in this city that there was little to no Jewish presence. How do we know that? Well, there's no synagogue. When Paul goes out to meet Lydia and the women, it's outside the city. And to have a Jewish synagogue, you had to have at least 10 men in the city. So we know that at the very least, there's not even 10 men here who believe in the Old Testament God. It's just women. And so Paul and the group go to the river and visit the women who gather for Sabbath worship. And we see that they begin to engage in, with, engage in conversation with them. And we can assume that they began to preach the gospel to these women. And it's here where we see that God opens the heart of Lydia. And there are two main things I want to bring up here. And the first is this. First of all, Paul preaches the gospel. Paul preaches the gospel. Believers, for us today, we are called to proclaim Christ and to proclaim the gospel to those around us, both with our words and with our actions. Why? Because God often uses our proclamation of the gospel to save other people. And we all have this calling on our lives. It doesn't matter who you are, how much of a public speaker you are, if you're an extrovert or an introvert, if you believe in Christ, that means you're called to proclaim the gospel. That's the first point. The second is this. The Lord opened her heart to believe. I touched on this already, but it is Christ who brings about the salvation of Lydia. It is his work, not Paul's. The Lord is the one who opens the human heart. And it is he who deserves all the glory and praise and majesty for any salvation story. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7 through 7 says, uh, Paul is speaking here. And he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And this is a beautiful truth for us to meditate on. Why? Because salvation for people around us isn't reliant upon us. If you getting saved was reliant on what, upon how well I can preach the gospel, no one would ever be saved. Each of us are broken people, broken vessels. And the beautiful thing is that God uses broken people to push out his message. And even a fractured, horrible retelling of the gospel, God can use that to plant seeds and bring someone to salvation. This ought to give us confidence as we go and share with one another and live out the truth of Christ. So then we look at Lydia's response. After she was saved, we see that her and her whole household were baptized. And this signifies an outward identification with Christ. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith. Baptism does not save you. It is merely you telling the world that I am now identified with Christ. I've been crucified with him. That's what's being done here. And it's incredible because we see Lydia's spiritual influence over her home permeated it so severely that everyone else in the house gets saved. And God uses her testimony not only to save 
uh, just her through Paul, but also everyone in her family. And the reason I bring this up is because a lot of us come from families where we might be the only believer. We might be the only one who knows Jesus. And what God tells us to do is to be a witness in our family's lives. Not to bash your family on the head with the gospel. In fact, they've probably heard it numerous times. But instead, to live it out to them. To be a servant. To love them, even when it's difficult. Why? So when they look at you and ask, man, what is so different about that person? The only answer that can come to their mind is Jesus. So, they're baptized. Following this, we see that she opens up her home. And she invites Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. She says, come and stay with me. And when God moves in her heart, her response was to give him everything she had. I would say for us today, we need to learn how to do the same thing. When God moves in our hearts, we need to learn how to give him all that we have. So often, we get saved, we come to know Christ, or maybe we've known him for a long time. And then we find that we are just grasping onto things in life. And I don't know what that would be for you. For some of you, it might be finances and money. Others of you, it'll be status and friendships, maybe a job. I don't know. But there is something in your life that you are holding on to. And God's desire for you would be to let that go and give it up to him freely. I need to do the same. That brings us to our second story where we're going to meet a possessed slave girl. So we're going to start in 16. It says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So the girl, the person we see here, the convert, is a slave girl. She was likely a Greek native. And we see that she has a spirit that possesses her. And she's following Paul around and disrupting his ministry. Things I would like to point out is first that she was physically enslaved. She would have been counted as the lowest of all social classes in the city. And she would have had absolutely no position, nor freedom. Not only was she enslaved physically, she was enslaved mentally. She was possessed by a demonic spirit. And because of this possession, she could predict the future to some degree. And her owners used this for lucrative lucrative financial gain. This was a common practice. At the time, many mediums, as they would be known as, would be visited by Roman generals or maybe people off the street who would want to know. Is my business venture going to succeed? What is going to happen to my kids? I don't know what it would be, but they would use these people and pay tons of money for them. So that's who we're dealing with. How is she saved? Well, we see that Paul continues his ministry in Philippi. He's met with Lydia and he's met with these women, and it says he continues to go back and forth to this place of worship, proclaiming the gospel. And what we see uh, follows this is that the enemy seeks to disrupt the good work. And Paul encounters opposition. Wherever the church develops, the devil seeks to obstruct the work. Friends, we have a very clear and real enemy in this lifetime. And the last thing he would want to see is the people of Christ being unified together over the truth of the gospel. And so we see that this medium begins to follow Paul around during his ministry. 
And at first you'd ask, like, what's, what's so wrong? She's telling the truth. Everything she says is true about Paul. And yet what we see is that having a medium confess the truth of Paul's position and role could easily have discredited Paul's mission and confused the people around her. They would have easily likened Christianity to the pagan religions that they would have seen on the streets. So it's kind of this diabolical way of telling the truth but discrediting the gospel. So not only did she do that, but she was becoming a distraction. So while trying to preach the gospel, this girl continued to yell and yell and yell, so much so that it became an annoyance to Paul. I don't know if any of you have been to a sermon where a baby begins to cry. You, you all know what I'm saying. It gets very awkward very fast. And you're all kind of like, oh, what's going on? Can you please take your kid out? It's like that. Every time Paul's trying to build up momentum and get into his service, this girl just starts to yell and he can't get out his message. It keeps interrupting him to the point where finally he turns around and commands her in the name of Jesus, Spirit, come out. And so Paul confronts the demon and commands it to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, we see the power is in Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus gave the apostles power over unclean spirits, we see that Paul invokes the power of Christ to cast out the spirit. And it's here where her owners lose their economic profit. But we can assume, and I believe, that the girl received the gift of salvation. Why do I say that? Well, first, the demons cast out. And secondly, Luke is telling us these three stories for a very specific reason. And he sandwiches the story of the slave girl between two other conversion stories. And for that reason, I really do think that this girl was saved. And her response would have been very much so similar to Lydia's, of giving all she had and joining the church. That would be the unknown response. We can only guess. The known response is this. The owners were furious. They cared only about the economic gain they could get from her. They didn't care anything about this woman, nor the miracle they had just witnessed. They watched a demon cast out, and the only thing they cared about is money. This should be a challenge to our hearts. Again, what are we grasping onto that God is saying, let go when God moves in our lives, do we care more about the financial profit, the way we look, than the fact that God is moving? We need to check our hearts and repent and turn to Christ. This brings us to our third character, the jailer. We're going to begin in verse 19. It says this, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the socks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. 
And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So our third character, our third convert we're going to look at is the jailer. And what does this tell us about him? Well, we would know that he was a Roman citizen, likely a retired military veteran, a soldier. The man would have been middle class, not making a ton of money, but also not poor. He would have been your, kind of your average Joe. He would have lived a, com- a comfortable life, probably kind of apathetic or just wouldn't even know about the gospel at all. And even if he did, he wouldn't care. And through his treatment of Paul and Silas, what we see is he really doesn't have much regard for for human life, nor any empathy for their pain and situation. So who would this be today? Uh, If we looked at Lydia, we assume that she was probably a private school girl. I think I skipped over this, but speaking of the slave girl, if we think of who she would be in our society, we would think probably someone about as far away from God as you can be. Someone in open opposition to the gospel. A fringe uh, person, essentially. Someone who doesn't interact much with society, and if they do, they'll look down upon. But for the jailer, this would probably be the kid you pass in the hallway. Someone Someone you don't assume much about. There's nothing that stands out. And living in Rockford, I would say this is probably where most of us fall. Many people you're going to interact with, and maybe this is you, don't know much about Christ. And if they do, they really don't care. That's exactly who the jailer was. And the need that those people share, and this jailer shared, is that they needed Christ. Just as much as Lydia did, just as much as the slave girl did, all three of these people are equally condemned to hell because of their sin. It did not matter whether they knew a bunch about God, they knew nothing about God, or they just didn't care. Apart from Christ, none of them were saved. That's who we're interacting with in this part. So how does his conversion come about? Well, first we see Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into prison. As a result of losing their income, the slave girl's owners are just mad. They've lost all their money, so they play into the anti-Semitic churnings of the city. And also they play into Roman law, accusing them of kind of causing a disturbance, and they rile up the crowd. And after this, they convince the magistrates to beat them and to throw them into prison. And I think it's pretty easy to kind of jump to the thrown into prison part, and we overlook the beating part. And what we know about this is that this beating of Paul and Silas is so severe that he brings it up, I think, several times in his letters beyond this point. We can assume that these men were beaten to the point where they could barely walk, where they were barely even alive. They would have been bleeding. And it's at this point that they're thrown into prison. These men couldn't even walk, and yet they decided to chain them. That tells us a lot about the jailer. After this, we see Paul and Silas' response to their situation, and this is an incredible 
passage right here. Having been beaten within an inch of their life, we see the response of Paul and Silas is to pray and to sing praises and hymns to God. I don't think many of us, if any, have ever been in a, in a situation as dire as Paul and Silas were right there. I don't think any of us have been beaten within an inch of our life and then locked up in a prison, but we've gone through hard things. Each of us has suffered hardship, persecution, disappointment, and failure. But is our response in those situations similar to that of these two men? If we really think about it, when we are suffering, is our first inclination to look to God and give Him praise? It needs to be. What allowed Paul and Silas to do this? An understanding of their Savior did. The only way this makes sense, that two men could be beaten to this point and then thrown into prison and yet still sing praises to God, is the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ came and died for them and that no matter what happened, even should they die, their eternity was secure in Him. That's what unlocks this kind of joy in the midst of persecution. We see that also in their response. There is a witness because it says the other prisoners were listening to them. These would have been thugs, these would have been criminals, and they're sitting there looking at two men who shouldn't be able to talk, sing praises to God. That is a powerful witness. And I'm going to tell you now that the most powerful witness you can ever have as a believer, in fact, one of the most powerful witnesses you can ever have as a believer is this. When you are suffering, when you are going through what the world considers to be a hardship or a negative thing, and you are able to turn around and praise God, everyone in the room will turn and say, what is wrong with them? How does that make sense? It doesn't apart from the gospel. It is an incredible witness when the believer praises God in the midst of suffering. And that's only unlocked through prayer and the grace of Christ. So we see right after this, God moves miraculously to open up the prison. This earthquake comes, the, the doors all open, the chains fall off, and the guard comes in and he's about to kill himself. He knows that the eventual uh, result of the prisoners escaping is his shame and his eventual execution. So he's like, I might as well just end my own life. It's dark. He can't see anything but open doors. And Paul yells to him and says, wait, we are all here. How? How would prisoners who had never heard about the gospel, never once in their lives done anything right in the span of what we could probably guess is a couple of hours, be convinced to stay when they had an opportunity for freedom? Only the gospel. The testimony of Paul and Silas worshiping God was so powerful. God miraculously used it to convince these men to stay, and each of them did. And we see the jailer, he doesn't even believe it. He says, bring lights, I need to see, I don't believe you. And he looks at every single door, and sure enough, the prisoners are still there. And we see it finally, finally kind of clicks in this man's head, that he is witnessing a miracle. What's his response? He falls before Paul and Silas, and he's trembling, and he says, what must I do to be saved? You know, in that moment, he had a pretty dire need. He needed the prisoners to all be there, or else he'd be killed. But what we see is, in the midst of this miracle, God opens his eyes to an even deeper need. And what was that? A need for a savior. 
He needed Jesus. And he recognized this. And so he says, what must I do? And the response Paul and Silas have is incredible. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They proclaimed the good news. And what is this good news? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. The son of God who came down from heaven to pay the price for our sins. Because every single one of us is separated from God because he is holy and righteous and we are sinners. And there's no way we could restore the relationship unless God took that first step towards us. And he did. He sent his son. And Jesus lived the perfect life we never could. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. And we see that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died for our sins. And three days later, he rose, showing that he was exactly who he said he was. And after appearing to his followers, he went into heaven. And there he's residing, interceding on behalf of those who follow him. This is the good news that Paul and Silas shared with the jailer. This is the man that the jailer believed in. And as a response, we see three things. First, he washed the wounds of Paul and Silas. There's this quote I had to share with you guys because it's by a man named Chrysostom. Really old name, kind of funny to pronounce, but he said this when reading this passage. And he's speaking about the jailer. He said, he washed them and was washed. It was reciprocal. He washed them from their stripes and himself was washed from his sins. Isn't that beautiful? This man begins to wash the wounds of Paul and Silas, two men he cast aside mere hours ago, and as he's washing off the blood and the grime and the dirt, an even better washing is happening to his soul. Secondly, he and his family are baptized. Again, we see this outward identification with Christ as he is baptized. It's a beautiful picture. And finally, he brings Paul and Silas into his home and freely gives all he has as a response to the good news of the gospel. And at the very end of it all, he rejoices, knowing that he and his family are saved. He rejoices. And friends, that should be our heart. When we encounter Christ, the Christian faith is not some dead, monotone, follow the rules. It is a living relationship with a Savior who loves you. It is life-giving. Every day you get to experience more and more and more of the one person who knows more about you than you ever will, who knows every sin you've ever committed and still looks at you in his heart. It's, it's lowly and gentle. And its inclination is to reach out to you and love you. That's why he came to know you. And in Philippi, we see that God saved three different people from completely different social, economic, ethnic, and religious backgrounds. You couldn't imagine people more different than one another. And they had no right interacting together. And yet, through the power of the gospel, they are unified into one church. I remember when I was in eighth grade, I got the good idea that I really wanted to play football. And I had to convince my mom. She thought that was a bad idea. But I prevailed. And I remember my first day of summer weights. So this is before I was a freshman. I showed up. There's about 40 kids on the team, and I quickly realized we had a lot of different people on our football team. We had our jocks, the kind of stuck-up guys, 
We had your kind of your thugs and the guys that were way too cool for school that were pushing drugs. We had your quiet bookworms, introverted, would never talk to a soul. And then we had your pampered Christians. Yours truly. <laughs> and as soon as we showed up, we all began to judge each other, and quickly little cliques began to form in the team. And none of us wanted to interact. But as soon as summer waits began, something began to change. Every morning, we had to wake up at the crack of dawn, and for three hours, our coaches would just break our bodies down. We suffered everything. I was a freshman. I didn't know what pain was. I found out pretty quick. And after an entire summer, we thought that we had exhausted every method our coaches had. We were wrong. The first week of school, we went through what our coaches affectionately call hell week. Those of you who have done sports probably know something similar to this. And what it means is we would do two a days. So now we were not working out once every day. We were working out twice for a week. And our, we, this is where we learned our new vocabulary for pain. We were broken. And I remember on the last day, we barely survived. We're limping and groaning, all of us, to the locker room as we go off the field. And we hear our coach, and he just yells, All right, everyone line up, super mile. And you would have just heard in all of us an audible just, ah. <laughs> Why? The super mile was the worst punishment. What it was is our school had a massive stadium with the track four laps is a mile. And instead of running just four laps, what you would do is you'd run the curves, and then when you hit the stands, you'd have to run all the stairs. So you would go curve, stairs, curve, stairs, curve, stairs, and you'd do that for four laps. It came out to about a mile and a half. So you would do a half mile just climbing stairs. And we just worked out for six hours. Honestly, it's a blur. I don't remember most of it. We pretty much died on that field. But what I remember is this. We limped off that field completely broken, but we survived. And after the pain we endured together, we experienced a profound change in our relationship. When we looked at each other, no longer did we see jocks, druggies, quiet kids, pampered Christians. Those things were still true of us. But our shared experience of suffering had created a tight bond of unity to the point where when we saw each other, we saw our brother. Friends, the Church of Christ is unified through the suffering that he experienced on the cross. On the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of an infinite and almighty God for our sake. And those who believe in him and profess him as Lord are partakers in that suffering and are counted as righteous before God. Not because we paid the price, but because he did. That truth is what brings unity to broken and sinful people that are so different and prone to disagreement. The gospel does not erase our differences, but it overrides them and allows us to have relationship with one another. Years after the church in Philippi was planted, Paul wrote them a letter. We know it as the book of Philippians. But I want to end with this verse. In it, Paul says some pretty incredible words. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends upon faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. We share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray.